Please take your Bibles tonight and turn to John, uh, John 15. John 15. Uh, I would say this, I would not be able to do what I do had, would it not be for the administration that we have and, um, and the staff that we have. I sometimes have days, um, even this past year, that I felt like the Maytag repairman. I just uh, would, sit, would sit around, okay, I gotta fix something, I'm not sure what to fix, but anyway, we, got, we have great, great staff. Uh, John 15, 13, we'll stand here in just a minute. Today and tomorrow, our, our nation celebrates a holiday to remember those who gave everything so that we may live in freedom. Freedom to speak, freedom to worship, and freedom to live as free people, to self-govern, to live out our lives as God being the final authority in our lives. Nearly 1.2 million Americans have died since the founding of our fathers, since the founding of this great nation. And they died to protect those God-given freedoms that we all have today. Many young men willing to sacrifice their lives so that we may be able to sit in a church service tonight and, and hear God's messages. Let's stand together as we read John 15, 13. John 15, 13. This is what it says. It says, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Let's pray. Dear God, tonight, Lord, I just pray that um, you will take, Lord, any, any, anything, Lord, that may keep us from your word, from hearing and understanding your word, Lord, tonight. Lord, I just pray that you will take um, this this vessel, Lord, and uh, this very imperfect vessel. Lord, I just pray that it will be used for you tonight. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. January 25th, 2008, while conducting a combat reconnaissance patrol through the uh, Gorshwitz Valley near Pakistan border, Staff Sergeant Miller and a small element of U.S. and Afghan National Army soldiers engaged a force of 15 to 20 insurgents occupying, um, occupying prepared fighting positions. Staff Sergeant Miller initiated the assault by engaging the enemy position with his vehicle-mounted turret uh, 40-millimeter automatic grenade launcher while simultaneously providing detailed descriptions of the enemy positions to his command, enabling effective, accurate, close air support. Following the engagement, Staff Sergeant Miller led a small squad forward to conduct a battle, um, to conduct a battle assessment um, near the small, steep valley that the enemy had inhabited. And a large, well-coordinated insurgent force initiated a near ambush with over 100 enemy insurgents. Assaulting from elevated positions with ample cover, exposed and with little available cover, the patrol was totally vulnerable to enemy rocket-propelled grenades and automatic weapon fire. As point man Staff Sergeant Miller 
was at the point of the patrol cutoff from the supporting elements and less than 20 meters from those enemy forces of over 100 insurgents. Nonetheless, with total disregard for his own safety, he called for his men to quickly move back to, to covered positions as he charged the enemy over exposed ground and under overwhelming enemy fire in order to provide protective fire for his team. While maneuvering to engage the enemy, Staff Sergeant was shot in his upper torso. Um, ignoring the wound, he continued to push the fight, moving to draw fire from over 100 enemy fighters upon himself. He then again charged forward through an open area in order to allow his teammates to safely reach cover. After killing at least 10 insurgents, wounding dozens and dozens more, and repeatedly exposing himself to withering enemy fire while moving from position to position, Staff Sergeant Miller was mortally wounded by enemy fire. His extraordinary valor ultimately saved the lives of seven members of his own team and 15 Afghan National Army soldiers. Staff Sergeant's heroism and selfless above and beyond the call of duty at the cost of his own life are in keeping with the highest traditions of military service and reflect great credit upon himself and the United States Army. Staff Sergeant Miller received the Medal of Honor for his sacrifice. There are many and many of these stories that you, that even in, in recent times, that, um, that you would hear how people, our service members, have given their ultimate sacrifice so we can sit here and have the freedoms that we do. Today we're in a war with an enemy that Americans, many Americans, they don't even realize that we're in and many of them don't even care. The divine right of kings was a doctrine that, was, um, that has been a doctrine over centuries and centuries. And you'll understand when I explain this of where I'm going with this here in a minute. And the kings would get their authority directly from God. And then they would relate that uh, authority, what God said to them, they would lay, would lay it to the people. So basically, you have God on top as the final authority, the government, and then you would have the people. For the first time in the history of mankind, our founding fathers flipped that totally upside down, where that God was on top, and then the people would directly get their communication from God, and then the people would use that to govern themselves. During the Revolutionary War, there was a man by the name of Joseph Reed, Joseph Reed was a lawyer, he was a military officer, and he was a statesman in the American Revolution. Reed had impeccable integrity. In fact, he was once offered a bribe of 10,000 pounds, which I'm not really sure what that is today. But it was, um, and he was also offered some of the most valuable offices in colonies to promote the cause of colonial reconciliation with the British crown. And this is what Reed said in his reply. I am not worth purchasing, but such as I am, the king of Great Britain is not rich enough to do it. 
He was also responsible in Pennsylvania for passing a law for the abolition of slavery in 1780. He was later appointed to Secretary George Washington's, uh, as a secretary for George Washington. And he actually designed the first flag that ever flown in this new nation. And the flag was, was, had a white background in it. In the middle of the flag was an evergreen tree with a point, and it pointed upward. And in the top, there was an inscription. And the inscription said this. It said, an appeal to heaven, appeal to heaven. And that flag was, fly, was flown, um, he was, it was commissioned as a flag, and it was flown in many, many wars during the Revolutionary War. It was also put on all of the battleships of the Continental Army. And here's the significance of that, of that flag. Our founding fathers understood and realized that man could go directly to God. And through his son, Jesus Christ, to get direction on how to govern. And no longer governments need to rule the people through its interpretation of the will of God. Because what happens is kings become corrupt. And through that corruptness, then they can will the people of what they would want to with the people. 1 Timothy 2.5, it says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. It's because of Jesus Christ being that perfect sacrifice for sin of the world, as described in Matthew 27, in Mark 15, and also in Luke 23. When the veil of that temple was rent and was torn in two, there was one God, one mediator between God and man, and the man was Jesus Christ. That veil was around four inches thick. It took nearly 400 priests to actually move that veil. So it wasn't just a little curtain that was rent, that was torn to. That's the significance of that. Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, he made a way that we could talk directly to God the Father. And that is the sign of that, is when that, when that veil was rent or torn in two. You see... We now have direct communication. We can go directly to the Holy of Holies through Jesus Christ. Our founding fathers realized that, that since man could get their instruction directly from God, the structure of civilization could be changed to a system of government that was ruled directly by the people. Ecclesiastes 1.9, it says this, The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. The last part of that verse, um, I have to be reminded of that constantly, constantly reminded of that. There's, there's new, issues, new issues that come up in our government time and time again. And there are basically issues that are repackaged because... God's word says there's really nothing new under the sun. Sin is sin, and it just gets repackaged from time to time. A term called critical race theory has becoming America's new institutional doctrine. 
Most Americans have never heard of it, and those that have don't really understand it. It is something as similar to Common Core as it's complex and compl complicated intentionally, but the basis of it is based on Marxism. I'm going to give you a brief history of Marxism so you'll understand what critical race theory is. Originally, the Marxists built um, its political program in a theory of class conflict. Karl Marx, Marx believed that the primary characteristic of industrial societies was an imbalance of power between capitalists and the workers. The solution of that imbalance, according to Marx, was a revolution. The workers would eventually gain consciousness of their plight, seize the means of production, overthrow the capitalist class, and usher in a new socialistic society. History shows us that Marxist-style revolutions have each ended in disasters. For example, uh, the Soviet Union, China, Cambodia, Cuba, North Korea, and elsewhere racked up a body count of in, in excess of a hundred million people who were slaughtered by their government. They were remembered by their gulags, show trials, executions, and mass starvations. In practice, Marx's ideals unleashed man's darkest brutalities. By the mid-60s, Marxist intellectuals in the West had begun to acknowledge that workers' revolutions would never occur in the Western Europe and the United States, where there were middle classes that were rapidly improving their standards of living. There were more millionaires in the United States uh, than ever before. Most Americans believe that in America, the American dream, the idea that they could transcend their origins through education, hard work, Good citizenship, built on a moral standard from the word of God. But rather than abandon their political pr project, Marxist scholars in the West simply adapted the revolutionary theory to a social and racial unrest in the 1960s. He abandoned the economic um, of capitalists and workers, and they substituted race for the class and sought to create a revolutionary movement based on racial and ethnic categories. Fortunately, in the 1960s, that race war did not work. Civil rights movements sought instead the fulfillment of the American dream and promise and equality under the law. Americans preferred the idea of improving their country to that of overthrowing it. But Marxists have proved to be very enduring. Let me explain what critical race theory is. Critical race theory is an academic discipline formulated in the 1990s. This is not anything really new, except it's being, um, it's being proposed more and more um, in the United States as we speak. The framework is based on Marxism. It has been pushed many years in universities, academic journals, and over the past decade, it has increasingly become the default ideology of our public institutions. 
It has been injected into government agencies, public school systems, teachers training, and corporate human resource departments in the form of diversity training programs, human resource modules, public policy frameworks, and school curriculum. There's a series of buzzwords, as you may, to describe critical race theory, including equity, social justice, diversity and inclusion, and culturally responsive teaching. Critical race theorists, masters of language construction, realized that Marxist terms would never be heard, so they used terms as I've just described. Equity, on the other hand, sounds like it's non-threatening. And it's easily confused with the American principle of equality. But the distinction is vastly different. Indeed, equality, the principle pro, uh, proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence, defined in the Civil War and codified in the law of the 14th and also in the 15th Amendments, also in the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But it is explicitly rejected by critical race theorists because it's not what it's about. Equity is defined and promoted by critical race theorists as little more than candy-coated Marxism. UCLA, UCLA law professor, now, now listen to where these people are coming from. They're coming from the academia world. And critical race theorist Cheryl Harris has proposed suspending private property rights, seizing land and wealth, and redistributing them among racial lines. Critical race guru um, Ibram Kendi, who directs the Center of Anti-Racist Research at Boston University, has proposed the, the creation of a federal department of anti-racism. This department would be independent. And by the way, when I'm telling you this, this is something that in, a, in the current administration, they are pushing this. This is something that if you listen to the news long enough, you will hear this. An independent organization that is unaccountable to the elected branches of the government. And this independent organization would have the power to nullify, veto, abolish any law at any level of government and curtail the speech of political leaders and others who are deemed insufficiently anti-racist. And they would do this, would completely usurp the United States Constitution and the three branches of government in doing so. And this is a, a proposal that is being considered currently by our government. The equity-based form of government would mean the end of not only private property, but also of individual rights, equality under the, wall, under the law, federalism, and the freedom of speech, as we so enjoy in our nation today. These would be replaced by race-based re redistribution of wealth, group-based rights, active discrimination, and other issues that would continue to arise from this. Historically, the, the, the accusation of anti-Americanism 
has been overused. But in this case, it's not a matter of interpretation. Critical race theory prescribes a revolutionary program that would overturn the principles of the Declaration of Independence and it would destroy our Constitution. And you say, well, you know, we live in our little our little bubble, we live in Central Baptist Church, or we live in America, and this is very, very far-fetched. This candy-coated Marxism is now being taught in our government. The FBI is holding workshops on intersectionality theory. The Department of Homeland Security was telling white employees they are committing micro-inequalities and have been socialized into oppressor roles. The Treasury Department held a uh, training session telling staff members that virtually all white people contribute to racism and they must convert everyone to the federal, to the everyone in the federal government to the ideology of anti-racism. The Sandia National Laboratories, this is a laboratory that designs all the nuclear arsenal for the United States sent all my sent all white male executives to a three-day reinduction camp where they were told that white male culture was related to the KKK and white supremacists and also mass killings. The executives were forced to renounce their white male privilege and write letters in of, of apology to fictitious women and people of color. In California, an elementary school forced first graders to deconstruct their racial and sexual identities and rank themselves according to the power, according to their power and privilege. And it goes on in, in, in places like Springfield, Missouri, a middle school forced teachers to locate themselves in an oppression matrix based on the idea that straight white, that straight white English-speaking Christian males are members of an oppressor class and must atone for their privilege and convert and covert white supremacy. Philadelphia Elementary School forced fifth graders to celebrate black communism and simulate the black power rally in the free 1960s era. It goes on places like Seattle. School districts told white teachers they are guilty of spirit murder. Um, in Ocala, Florida, you ever heard of that place before? I interviewed a professor at CF who called, quote, white gun owners, white Christian terrorists. And that is at CF from our own um, local school systems. Now do you understand why I am so anti-government schools? See, this is not isolated. I have in my possession in excess of a thousand of these stories. Thousands of these stories. They're from universities and bureaucracies, from K through 12 school systems, all over our nation. It has permeated the collective intelligence and decision-making process in our American government. And let me be clear, this is a Marxist revolution in our nation. 
And by the way, there are critical race components in the current stimulus bill that's now being proposed in Congress. This has become a perfect storm. If you talk about race, if you talk about religion, if you talk about the LGBT agenda, or any topic that can be used as a political agenda, you will get demonized. If you take a stand for righteousness, you will be persecuted. But the way that this is, is crafted and set up, if you talk about this, then you will be demonized for it. Um, I do expect to get demonized for this because that is the way that it is crafted. You see, I go back to Genesis, and it says in Genesis that God made man in his own image, created he him, it was a he and a she, created he them. Right. So that is the end of my conclusion when I say, when we talk about race. God made each and every one of us in his own image. So what right do I have to consider my race any better or worse than anybody else's? Because it's not biblical, it is of the devil. The federal government and public school systems have their equity inclusion departments that serves as political offices searching for and stamping out any dissent that may come about. In John 18, or I'm sorry, John 8:32, it says, "Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free." America is indeed at war. The very foundations of this great republic are crumbling. Charles Finney, he was a great evangelist during the Great Awakening, and he said this, and I quote, If there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the press, if the public press lacks moral discernment, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church is degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the world loses its interest in Christianity, the pulpit is responsible for it. If Satan rules in our halls of our legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government are ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it." End of quote. Right. Even back those many years ago, Charles Finney understood <clears throat> Charles Finney understood very clearly that if the church falls in the Western world, if the church falls in America, <clears throat> so were our nation. Because our nation was built on biblical principles. It was, a, it, was, it was built that we, the people, rule our government. And if we, the people, become immoral, and there's no basis of morality, then our government will indeed fall. Today, I reflect on those 1.2 million people, soldiers, Americans, 
that gave an ultimate sacrifice for the freedoms that we enjoy today. There's a father, there's a mother, a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter, who were willing to give their very lives so that we can have the freedoms that we enjoy today. And I would ask this, what, what are we doing? What are you doing to make sure that those that have given their lives for this very nation, this very country, these very freedoms, that they did not die in vain? What are you doing as Americans, I would ask, to make sure that those people that gave their very lives, that we may sit here, what are you doing? to make sure that they do not die, that they did not die in vain. And then I would go to another place and I would say this. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice for us. And my question to believers is what are we doing to make sure that we're doing what he called us to do? So that death that Christ died on the cross was not just for us, but it was for the world. And finally, I would ask this question. For those that don't know Christ as their Savior, I would ask you this question. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He died on a cross to pay for your sin debt. He was buried, he, was, he rose again on the third day. But he did all that for you. He is offering you a free gift of salvation. But if you don't accept that free gift, then you will not have that free gift of salvation.